Thank you, Gary. Okay. When Augie approached me to consider filling in for pastor this Sunday, after the first share of terror of the thought, I almost didn't think about it when I said, yes, absolutely. That was two weeks ago. During the course of that week, I was preparing a sermon on creation and the flood, something I'm very passionate about. That's another story. But in the back of my mind, I had this constant thought. Why don't you preach about heaven? I ignored it. I kept preparing my sermon on creation until by the end of last week, all I could think of were the words of W.A. Criswell, the former head of the Southern Baptist Convention and pastor of First Baptist Dallas, who spoke to an assembled audience of young men at a chapel service in Portland, Oregon and pled with those who were preparing for the ministry to preach about heaven. I couldn't ignore that thought, so I figured perhaps the Lord is trying to tell me something. And that's when the trouble began. And we'll pray in just a moment. I just need to let you know why I may be trembling a little bit up here this morning. If you hear a knocking, it's just my knees, so don't worry about it. I was researching the background to a Greek word that was very important in this morning's study, and I pulled up a website online. Suddenly, my screen was locked. I had this voice telling me, my computer has been affected, infected. Don't shut it down. You need to push this button and subscribe to somebody who's going to help me. And I knew enough not to do that. <laughs> but after several hard boots, uh, I did discover that it would at least work for a little window, so I started writing the notes to my sermon. And after more than a dozen crashes during the course of this last week and losing all my notes, finally I was able to salvage some of them and build the sermon. Then I got to the PowerPoint presentation and it started all over again. So what you see this morning is... Uh, a collection of verses on topics concerning heaven. My intention is not to go deep like Pastor Matt. Pastor Matt is like a skilled gold miner. He goes into a shaft and he dives down and he separates all the, all the useless ore to find those veins of gold. And every one of us come home richer for the experience. I know there are times when I had to resist saying, don't stop the sermon right now. Keep on going. We'll call La Casita to have lunch shipped in for us. But uh, I didn't do that. I didn't want to be stoned. But anyway, that sets the background for this morning. And I'd just like to have us pray for a moment before we get going. Lord, I thank you 
for this week. I thank you for the exercises that you put me personally through as I switch gears and focus my thinking on heaven, something that honestly I spend very little time thinking about. Father, thank you for your word because you have not left us without information. You have not left us without glimpses, without steps into your throne room, without solid, dependable information that can guide our life knowing that we, the earth is not our home. We're just a passing through. So, Lord, I just ask you to be with me this morning. Help me to say nothing that would be a stumbling block, nothing that contradicts your word, not to rely on personal opinions, Lord, but just your word. And I pray for Pastor this morning. I pray that you would just enrich him this morning as he worships and I'm sure continues to prepare for the continuing message on Esther that he will share when he gets back. Pray for their safe travels. We pray for Ryan as he ministers to First Baptist Bisbee. Lord, strengthen him, give him clarity of thought, protect him on the travel, and just help him as he proclaims your word. In Jesus' name, I commit this time to you. Amen. So you know when someone at the pulpit takes off his watch, it's for one of two reasons. Either he's going to ignore it and preach as long as he wants, or like me, he intends on stick to that 11 o'clock hour. Honestly, I'm not good enough to preach past 11, so you don't have to worry about that. Just a brief note about myself. It's the irony of the grace and mercy of God that I even would be here this morning. I grew up in a family where my father was a committed and outspoken atheist. I knew all the reasons why one should not darken the door of a church or look to the Bible for any sort of instruction. My mother was a Catholic slash Methodist slash Presbyterian who once in a while was permitted to take the family to church just because dad loved her enough to do that. And honestly, he felt pretty safe that he was not going to have to hear any of the Bible. He hated Christians and he despised the Bible. When I was 10 years old, while attending one of those Presbyterian churches, I was looking at a stained glass window of all things and I was struck with the impression there is a God. I cannot doubt that. I don't know anything about Him, but I am convinced that there is a God. And that knowledge went unexplained and unfulfilled until at 13, until at 13 I was attending my grandparents' church, Grace Trinity Bible Church in Poway, California. And I heard Pastor Victor Bogdan explain clearly that we were sinners and that meant we were separated from a holy God. And that there was one way to heaven and that was through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And on that day back in 1965, between the end of my 
junior high years and the beginning of my high school years, I accepted the Lord and thus began the journey. I had to study my Bible in secret. One time my dad walked into my closed bedroom, opened the door, discovered me studying my Bible of all things. There wasn't a stack of Playboys on the counter. And I had one of the strongest sermons from an atheist that I'd ever heard about how religion would ruin you. You can't believe that. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, etc., etc., etc. But I continued to study my Bible in secret. It was uh, over the course of time, after I got out of the army in 1977, that I chose to study the Bible in a school in Portland, Oregon. And I spent, for me, it was a three-year program. I only spent five years going through it, but I was driving city bus at the time to help put myself through and trying to raise my family, and uh, it was interesting. But heaven, more specifically, the hope of heaven. Why do we have hope of heaven of all places? You've heard people talking about heaven. I'd rather be with my buddies in hell playing poker, and, you know, I don't want to be around all those religious people. You've heard others describing heaven as something that sounds about as exciting as going through the Dewey Decimal cards in the back of the library just to make sure they weren't out of order. Past years, you can tell it's been a while since I've been to our library. But hope in our modern culture means wishful thinking, the hope of wishful, the hope of heaven. I hope I find what I'm looking for at the Black Friday sale, or I hope the D-backs win the series in 2022. But the Greek word used for hope in the New Testament carries none of that ambiguity. It literally means something that is certain, but not yet realized. I'm going to be sharing uh, from Bible verses. You will see some of those on the screen as right here. Uh, I will be reading some of those. Sometimes you'll just get a reference to a verse. I had to do that this week because I wasn't sure when my PowerPoint would crash the next time. So forgive me for that. But I will be reading along with you for some of these things. Towards the end, I may have to skip over some and just give you a reference. My hope is that as we touch a topic, that deals with heaven, you may be able to jot down some notes, chapter and verse, and come back and study it later. Back to hope. In Romans 5.2, we read that we exult in hope of the glory of God. In Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, we read, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, but the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And we remember that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a down payment. What is a down payment for? That's the promise of something that you're going to have to pay back, or in this case, receive in the future. And that hope is to be with God forever in heaven. Colossians 1.27 reads, Christ in you, the hope 
of glory. Try substituting in your mind the word certainty when you see that word hope. Titus 3.7, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the slight chance of eternal life, wishful thinking of eternal life, according to the hope, the certainty of eternal life. And Sabina, I apologize, but I kept making notes up until late last night on my sermon, so this won't appear on the slide. We're actually still on this page. But I'd like to add Job 19, verses 25 to 27. Now, Job is debatedly the oldest book of the Bible. But yet, back in those early days of our written scripture, Listen as Job responds to his critics. Job 19, starting with verse 25. Here's Job, again, sitting, suffering, being criticized by his so-called friends. Speaking, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. This is that taste of what happens when we die. The old flesh remains buried here on earth, and yet Job is talking about, in my flesh, I will see God. What is he talking about? As we will see later, God will resurrect everyone, everyone who has ever lived at one point in history. More about that later. When he resurrects us, we will be reunited with a newly renovated version of the old body that's a much better one. A lot of us are looking forward to that. The new, good, thank you. Uh, the ESV Bible uses uh, the word heaven some 493 times in 464 different verses. It appears more than 50 times in Revelation alone. But the entire book of Revelation is written from heaven's perspective, although it deals with many events that are going to take place on earth. Scripture refers to heaven to refer to three different heavens. The first heaven is what we would call the atmosphere. It's the biosphere in which we live and breathe. The second heaven is the planetary heavens and outer space where the moon, planets, and stars are. So, for example, in Genesis 1.14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. That's the second heaven. And then finally, the third heaven, which Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. The heaven where God dwells with his holy angels and those saints who have died. The third heaven. And references to that, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Deuteronomy 26.15, 1 
And I think I'll stop there. God is not contained there. You have to understand God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time. In fact, you read in the Psalms where the psalmist is despairing about how I can't escape from you, God. Even the depths of the ocean, I can't get away from you. That is true. And yet God has chosen a special place in this third heaven as his dwelling place where sits his throne and where the angels and other angelic beings surround him and contribute to worship. So next slide. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Sabina. Could you go back one? You can tell how awkward I am with this. Forgive me for that. So what happens when I die? Your spirit is immediately with the Lord in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8 says, Therefore, always, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. If you're from a Catholic background, and I've I've worked with Catholics when I worked at the chapel up uh, on Fort Huachuca, Main Post Chapel. There is an assumption that there is a purgatory where you actually acquire more righteousness to make yourself acceptable to go into heaven. That is not nowhere in Scripture. When you die, you go, if you are a believer, you go to be immediately with the Lord. Luke 23 42 to 43 says, And he, one of the thieves on the cross, is beside Jesus, was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. In other words, heaven. Uh, next slide. You're also immediately made perfect. And I'm starting to run just a little behind here, so I might go a little quickly on this. In Hebrews 12, 14, we read, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or the process towards perfection, in this case, glorification or being made perfect, without which no one will see the Lord. No one can look on God. No one can be in the presence of God unless he or she is made perfect. And that perfection happens the minute we're in heaven. We read in Hebrews 12, 22 to 23, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That doesn't happen here on earth. We don't work our way to perfection on earth. We are trying to be to sin less, but we in no ways are sinless when we go to heaven and are made perfect. And then 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Again, in heaven, Perfect. 
I'm also going to just refer you to 1 Corinthians 13, 10, and 12, but I'm going to have to move on as quickly as I can here. Next slide. You will live in the presence of God who satisfies completely. You think that perfection means you're going to be bored to death? I have a dear relative who was a missionary for many years in Germany, and she has asked me, a number of questions about what happens after I die and what heaven is going to be like. And some of those questions have included, am I going to be bored to death? What am I going to do when I'm in heaven? And was, am I going to have to cook for myself in heaven? I hope not because I'm going to be eating uh, pork and beans for a long time, I think. No, heaven satisfies completely because you are with the God who satisfies completely. There's nothing lacking to be living in the presence of God. Uh, next slide. What happens when I die? You will meet born-again spouses, family members, friends, earthly notables and nobodies in heaven and will enjoy perfect unending fellowship. You will not be at a loss for what to say. You will not be tempted to lose patience with anyone because there is no sin in you or in them. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 and then 17-18 to 18 describes, yes, what happens in the rapture, but it describes also what we're going to be like in heaven. And let me read this briefly. Verse 14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, died in Jesus. So, God is going to take those who have died with him, the, the spirit reunited actually with a glorified body in the rapture. But then verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, those who have died, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So he's describing to this group of Thessalonians who were concerned that their dead relatives may miss out on the rapture, miss out on this wonderful trip to heaven. But he dispels that when he finishes with, therefore comfort one another with these words. In other words, we will be with the spirits of those who have died and gone to heaven before the rapture, and then those who go in the rapture, of course, will have glorified bodies to enjoy that fellowship. Finally, um, next slide. You will be recognizable as you, but you will be different. For some of us, that's a good thing. And I'm going to give you several verses here. I'm going to read one, John 12, 23 to 24. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Picture a grain of wheat or a kernel of corn. There's nothing very impressive when that goes into the ground and it dies. And yet, look the beauty. Of, look at the beauty of the life that springs forth from that. 
And that is very much an analogy to what our glorified bodies are going to be like in heaven. Much better than what we see now. Other verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49, and 1 Corinthians 15, 50, and 53 to 54. And then Matthew 17, 3, where in the transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John are with the Lord and he's transfigured and his appearance becomes radiant, his clothes turn white, and he's standing beside Moses and Elijah. They were recognizable. He didn't have photos sitting on his counter or a painting hanging on his wall so that he could recognize Moses and Elijah, but they were instantly recognizable. And so will we be in heaven. Uh, go right along. Let's see. No pain or suffering. I'm going to read one of these verses. I see time is flying here. For the anxious longing, Romans 18, 19 to 23, of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So everything around us has been touched by the fall. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Another passage is 2 Corinthians 5, 1-5, Psalm 23, 6, where David proclaims that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's not stopping by for a visit or floating over it as if some detached spirit. We're dwelling, we're living there, we're a part of the life of heaven. I'll leave those other verses for you to look at. What will our relationships be like in heaven? This is my opinion, so feel free to plug your ears if you want for the next minute or so. I believe they will be perfect relationships. Number one, because there is no sin in heaven. We'll be recognizing our friends or our spouse or former spouses, but with no memories of wrongs or blame. And yet we, build, we will be remembering things which happened on earth because there is talk in Revelation about the saints that were slaughtered by the Antichrist saying, how long, O Lord, until those who put us through this will be offered uh, punishment for this. Uh, also, we will not be married in heaven. There is uh, absolutely clear word of that in scripture uh, for some of you that will be horrible news that you'll see your spouse but you won't be married for others of you it'll be saying but uh, anyway next slide please uh, what what will I see in heaven now these are verses from Ezekiel that describe the four cherubs they uh, basically we can get stuck in trying to interpret details of these visions 
I don't think Ezekiel meant it that way. I don't think Isaiah meant it that way. But what they are describing is basically indescribable. They are in the presence of the glory of God, which is so unlike anything they have ever seen on earth that there is no comparison. Try to describe that in words that you can come up with. Is there a temple in heaven? Uh, yes and no. And again, this is my confusion on this topic. Revelation 3.12, we read, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I think that's probably, figuratively speaking, that we're going to have a role in the worship of God like a pillar holds up a temple. Uh, Revelation 7.15 for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. But I believe that more or less refers to the throne room of God. But in Revelation 21:22, referring to the new Jerusalem, I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So we'll let Pastor Matt sort that out if you have questions. I honestly don't know the answers. Next slide, place of true worship. Heaven is a place of true worship. We get a taste of that here on Sunday morning. It's enough to whet our appetite for the spectacular worship that we're, that we're going to be enjoying constantly because we're in the presence of God constantly. My desire is that God gives me, I, I do not have a preacher's voice as you very well realize, I hope that God gives me a voice to sing like Luciano Pavarotti. I'd love to stand and sing in a heavenly opera. And if I could play one instrument right now, the only thing I can play is my foot if the rhythm's good enough. But uh, if I can, I would love, I think there's nothing quite like what I've heard from Yitzhak Perlman or a number of other musicians who just bring that instrument to life. We know that the glory of God lights heaven. Uh, I'll let you take a look at that, but there will be no electricity bill in heaven uh, because God's glory surrounds us. And in the new Jerusalem, the walls are translucent. Uh, even where we live, the glory of God will shine through. I do have one belief one brief bone to pick with the King James Bible. The King James Bible talks about our mansions in heaven. I think I would go with John MacArthur who said, no, that word is better translated apartments or compartments. So if you're living in an apartment in heaven, you know that if something breaks, you have a landlord who can come to fix it. So, so in heaven, we will see cherubim. Uh, Revelation 4, 6 to 8 talks about the cherubim surrounding the throne. Seraphim, similar a bit to cherubim, but a little different. Isaiah 6, 1 to 3. I'm going to skip ahead past archangels to where does the new Jerusalem fit in, Sabina, if we could. So, New Jerusalem, and it is the capital city of heaven. And the place, I believe, that Jesus has prepared or is now preparing for us to dwell in for eternity. Isaiah 65, verses 
17 to 19 describe the new Jerusalem as do Revelation 21, 1 to 22, 5. And it would, it would do you an injustice for me to try to cram into a few minutes the description we get of the new Jerusalem. There is one more. Let's see, it. the new heavens and the new earth. Let's see. Okay. Revelation uh, 21 1 and 2 Peter 3 7 and 10 to 13 describe the uncreation of the universe, including present day heavens and earth. Does that mean God is going to destroy himself? No, of course not. But when he creates new heavens, his presence will be throughout the universe. The earth will be different. It is not a water-based system, which I find hard to understand. But then again, I don't understand heaven. And God will be with us there forever. There's one important insert I'd like to make. And Sabina, this is not on the slides. But if you could turn briefly with me to John chapter 5. Verses 25 to 29. As I alluded to before, everyone who's ever lived will be resurrected. And Jesus talks about this in confronting his opponents. Chapter twenty-five or chapter five, verse twenty-five. Truly, truly. In other words, pay attention. Pay attention. I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. He didn't restrict the dead to be dead believers, but to everybody. Verse twenty-six. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. I'm going to read on a little bit. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who commit, committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Is this salvation by deeds? Absolutely not. But God is going to look on those of us who have trusted him for the forgiveness of our sins, God's sole provision for our forgiveness of sins. And he is going to look on us and see the righteousness of Christ, if you can believe that. But those who do not know the Lord, he will have to look on them and see what deeds have they done to earn their way to heaven. And nobody will qualify. Those who are resurrected who know the Lord will be given a glorified body to fit us for life in heaven for eternity. Those who have not will also be given a body, a body that will live forever, but it will fit them for eternal 
punishment in the lake of fire, which was originally designed only for the devil and his angels. I hope you take heaven seriously. I hope you long to see God. The verse this morning uh, in our call to worship, I'm just going to repeat that verse very briefly. Philippians 3, 19 to 29. Who set their minds on earthly things where our citizenship is in heaven. He's drawing a contrast. From which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. In closing, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks and answers this one question. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, that's it. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. My friends, what end will you choose? Could we pray, please? Lord Jesus, I thank You for Your Word, which for years I have sought to depend on, Lord. Your Word is trustworthy. It is authoritative. It holds sway over every one of us who is a created being from God. It is dependable. And we can hope in its promises, Lord. Just thank you for this journey through your word, Lord. I hope your word would bear fruit and that everything else that did not matter that I have said this morning would just be forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. If I could just add, if anyone does not know the Lord Jesus to be his Savior and his Lord, there are those of us here who would be happy to walk you through how you can do that. Uh, elders, could you just raise your hands briefly this morning? Uh, deacons, deaconesses, you're, you'd be most welcome to pick out any of these people or someone next to you, and if they don't know, grab one of us, and we'll be happy to explain that. But thank you. Thank you very much, my friend.